And uh, good afternoon. Three minutes after one o'clock on Saturday. Good to have you here once again. Going to talk some disability law. This may be an issue in your life right now. There is hope. There is help. And it's right here. You want to talk to uh, James Farman or Tamara Gopian, both Sam Firu, Tamark, and LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. They can help out here and now and beyond, of course. Uh, to reach out anytime, it's one 855 5900 help at ca. but uh, we can take your calls and texts over the next hour here on the show. would love to, uh, to talk to you if you got a few moments. Phone 416-872-1010, or if you prefer the text route, we can do that. 71010 is the way you uh, you get in touch here. For the next little while, we got a ton of emails coming in already, guys. We've uh, stockpiled a few, so we'll, we'll whittle our way through those. But uh, we always start tomorrow with a, a case of the day or a week that was. I know you got a couple things you wanted to uh, crack open here. What do you got, pal? Absolutely. Thanks, John. You know, mm-hmm. sunny day out there. Uh, and I had a couple of calls yesterday that I thought were really interesting that I wanted to start off the show talking about. One of them is, uh, and look, and I'm, I'm going to keep this individual's uh, personal information confidential, but uh, her situation gives rise to something uh, fairly interesting that we see on and off, uh, but one that I think can be really difficult to navigate. So, Here's the background. She uh, worked uh, a fairly routine type office type position. Uh, She developed some mental health conditions three years ago, actually, and began seeing a therapist fairly consistently to try and manage that and tried to keep working while she was getting treatment for her mental health conditions, which as a side note, James and I often see is the answer to disability by a disability insurers who say, look, you can keep working and get treatment and you, you'll be fine. Well, uh, lo and behold, and not surprisingly, that wasn't the case for her, unfortunately. And it got to a point that both her therapist, uh, psychologist, I believe, uh, was the designation of this individual treatment provider. So the psychologist and the family doctor agreed enough's enough. I think at this point would have been about two years ago, just about two years ago now, uh, where they said, Jerry, you got to stop working. So she stopped working, continued the therapy, same psychologist, same family doctor, and submitted her application for disability benefits. She was approved and kept uh, being on the quote unquote approval mode for some time. And it got to a point where the insurance company was getting close to that change of definition mark that we talk about fairly routinely on the show, where the insurance company has to assess now, no longer is it the question whether or not this individual can go back to the job that they were doing at the time they became disabled and unable to work, but rather, is there anything in the world that she could do, anything for which she has the minimum requirements, the education and the background, that will essentially pay her roughly what she's getting as her LTD benefit. But the insurer in particular was getting quite hot and bothered about the fact that the psychologist's records were not accessible. Hmm. So despite the fact that the insurance company knew that she was under treatment for a number of years with the same psychologist, and they approved and paid her on this basis, when it came time to the change of definition analysis, they were insisting that these records be produced. And it landed on the claimant to try and coordinate to be essentially what she described as the go-between the insurance company and the psychologist to get the records over to the insurance company to have her claim continued to be approved. And let's not forget, she also had her family doctor in her corner in this time frame, And ultimately, 
what ended up happening is it looks like the psychologist didn't appropriately document or perhaps wherever the treatment was, they didn't release the records. And the insurance company actually asserted that, well, because we don't have the records, we don't have anything to support that you've been getting, quote unquote, appropriate treatment under the policy to continue the benefits. Also, your family doctor you're seeing once every three months or so, and things seem to be more of the same. So we're going to just cut off the claim. I think it was just short of actually the, the full two years own occupation. So they cut her off at the own occupation phase and say, we think we can go, you can go back to your, your job. And that's that. So she continues to try and get the records that she needed to justify her disability claim, has been unsuccessful. It has been months, may I add. And of course, she's sort of burnt out by the whole thing. She experiences a trigger, an exacerbation of her mental health conditions. Uh, She's now looking for a different psychologist and she's still seeing the same family doctor who's saying, look, your prognosis is not good. The, The likelihood of you returning back to any sort of level of functional work is unlikely or low because you've been getting treatment fairly regularly for years now and we still haven't managed to get your function in in a place or at a place where we can reasonably uh, justify getting you back into the work setting whether it's your own occupation or any occupation but the insurance company wasn't going to be deterred and as we know you know once it gets close to that two-year mark they're going to find any reason under the sun to cut off the claim And in this instance, they used what we routinely see in policies, which is, you know, you've got to meet the test of total disability, but you've also got to demonstrate to us that you're getting appropriate treatment for that disability in order to take active steps to recover and get back to a work setting. Because guess what? If you do that, then they don't have to pay you either, right? So, you know, these policies are really just uh, geared towards the insurance company to have these sort of outs uh, to to find ways to cut off the claim. But I thought it was an interesting situation, very sympathetic. She and I had a long discussion yesterday, uh, and I think that this is a good breeding ground for a legal claim, uh, because I don't think that the insurance company is actually on solid ground here. You know, I think, yes, you know, ultimately, the onus is on the claimant to demonstrate that they have a disabling health issue. Yes, they are required to provide records to the insurance company to demonstrate that and support the claim. But if the insurance company is also aware and they've also met the same challenges that the claimant has in terms of getting those records, then I got to wonder what a court would do in a situation like this. It's undeniable that she was under treatment and they accepted that. It's also undeniable that her family doctor still still supporting that she cannot work. So it's shaky from the insurance company's perspective, but I thought it was a good one to start off our show discussing because it's a bit nuanced. And of course, I'm always interested to hear what James has to say about it. James? What do you think, Val? Well, you know, I, I certainly think it's something that we could help on. I don't feel as strongly that the insurer is in the wrong, at least at this point. But I think it's set up to be a very strong case if once the records are obtained or if they're not, if a, uh, a new psychologist is able to provide the appropriate support. I think once that happens, I think they're in a, in a difficult spot. And let me explain why. First, you know, the, you mentioned, of course, that it is the duty of the claimant to provide the proof that you are disabled. Um, that had been done, obviously, in the past, but no, I don't think that knowing that you are getting treatment is sufficient. I, I, I really think a court ultimately would say that unless you can show what that treatment was and what your uh, ongoing 
uh, impairments were and functional limitations were, which you would typically do by providing those notes and records. I think that they may be entitled to at least suspend the payments. Whether or not it is warranted to close the file, so to speak, and I don't know that there's any real meaning to that, by the way, um, is another question. But I could certainly see an insurer saying, we're not going to pay I mean, <clears throat> we're not going to pay until you've provided these records. We're going to suspend the payments. So in that situation, and I'm sure you're canvassing this as a possibility tomorrow, um, I, you know, I would always have a conversation with my client because the difficulty here seems to be much more about the, the treatment provider, the psychologist, and getting those records. And they're you know, obviously being quite difficult in doing that. And so psychologists, much as you know, medical doctors would be, have their own college. And I would typically ask the client whether or not they're at a point that it makes sense for me as a lawyer to get involved and write either you know directly to um, the psychologist or at least provide them with information to do that on their own, saying that they have a positive duty to provide this information uh, to their to their patients, um, and particularly when it's in support of getting insurance benefits that they require in order to survive. And they know that, and their college is going to enforce that um, if they don't. Now, I'm always hesitant to take that. It's, it's almost a nuclear option. And what I don't want to do is get in between a relationship between a, a patient and a doctor, a patient and a psychologist uh, that is providing ongoing benefit. I, I, I'm very careful about entering into that relationship in any way. But sooner or later, something has to happen. And so it's a conversation that you would always have with the client, of course, and see what their preference is in terms of how to proceed. It sounds as though in this case tomorrow that uh, this lady has pretty much put her hands up in the air and said, I can't get anywhere with this guy or this lady and I need to find somebody else. And if they're at that point, then certainly they should be looking to get uh, a new treatment provider because that's paramount. Getting proper treatment comes before any other legal concerns, of course. Uh, but then at that point, if they already have decided that the relationship is something that can't be repaired, then you might as well send the letter telling the psychologist you have a duty. This is required by the, the College of, of, of Psychologists. And if you aren't prepared to abide by that, then we're going to have to enter a complaint with the college in order to get these records produced. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, there, there are things that can be done. I don't know that it's on the insurer in this case, but we certainly would be able to help some of that situation. Short break, guys, and we're back into it. I know you have something else to discuss on the other side tomorrow, so we'll get to that and a lot of email as well. You want to send one along? If we get to it today, fine. If not, we'll get to it on a future show. Uh, to call in, though, for the uh, remainder of the hour, if you want to have a chat here, you can do so, 416-872-1010. If something concerns you with your LTD insurer, uh, you can do that. Text 71010 as well, and that email address, help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show. It's the Bell Talk Radio Network. Yeah. 
It is 120. Welcome back on a hot, beautiful Saturday, sunny afternoon here in summertime. James Fireman is here. Tamara Gopian here as well. Always ready to answer your questions in full. Right here, you want to reach out uh, here and now. You could do so. Phone line 416-872-1010. If you want to text a question, 71010 is the way to do that as we continue the Disability Law Show. Both James and Tamara always reachable, ready to have that conversation off air. And to do that, one 855 821-5900 the emails which we're going to dig into here in just a moment that would be help at disabilityrights.ca but tomorrow you had another uh, another piece you wanted to share with us something else that was going on with you this week what was it yeah thanks john it was a little bit related to the one that i talked about at the top of the show about appropriate treatment and you know the onus being on the claimant to demonstrate that they have medical supporting their disability claim and uh, i had a, a different call different individual who raised kind of an interesting situation which was you know the insurance company said look you know we want your family doctors updated clinical notes and records uh we're prepared to pay for them uh you know can you sign this waiver or authorization to allow us to request these records directly from your doctor he says fine no problem does so and then the doctor submits a pre-payment requirement for for the insurance company to say sure i'll release the records but uh, you know, my office charges $250 to do this. So the insurance company turns around and says, you know what, we don't think this charge is reasonable. We'll pay 100 bucks, but we're not going to pay the 250 bucks. So very detailed kind of nuanced <laughs> sort of issue. But bottom line, what they end up doing is they render their decline decision and say, look, you know, we don't think you're totally disabled anyway. But the decision was only based on the information they had up to that point. It was not the full updated clinical notes and records because the insurance company didn't want to pay as much as the doctor wanted to charge. So, you know, I had a fairly lengthy discussion with this claimant about his options. And, you know, I think that the challenge becomes that most policies will say that if you have, are required to provide additional medical information, it's actually up to you to pay for it and supply it to the insurance company to justify or, or support the disability claim. But this one kind of bugged me a bit. Um, and again, I'm interested to hear what James has to say, but you know, the fact that the insurance company was willing to pay for part of it, didn't then rendered their decline decision based on partial information, I think does expose the insurance company a little bit, even though the policy probably no doubt says that the responsibility is on the claimant. Now, I hadn't seen the policy and that's sort of a next step with this particular um, consult, but uh, you know, just with the information that we have, uh, you know, who's responsible here? You know, is there an issue again with the doctor and, the, you know, the reasonable rates to be charged to disclose this kind of information? Should the claimant have actually paid for the expenses related to that? Should there have been some in-between position between the insurance company and the claimant about who should have paid for the records? You know, I'm curious, James, you know, what would you advise a, a lead like this who's saying, look, you know, this is the situation I've been declined almost preemptively uh, without the insurance company of having had the full um, disclosure from my doctor about well, my disability? I'm, I'm curious whether before rendering their decision they notified this lady that the charge was in their view too high and that they weren't going to pay it yeah they told her no no i don't think they did um i so, think that came out afterwards uh, yeah if, after they, the if they didn't tell her then i think the claim is absolutely solid yeah. if they if they said here just sign the authorization we'll go get it 
and then said, oh, this is too much, but never gave the claimant an opportunity to say, okay, well, I'll pay it then. You need to have the information. Then that's completely unfair. There's, you know, a reasonable expectation created by the insurer that those records would be obtained and used and relied on. And if that's going to change, it's up to the insurer at that point to, at the very least, notify the claimant that they're no longer doing this. Uh, you know, question whether if they had notified her, what would happen? That's a little bit of a stickier situation. And maybe it would have fallen back to her to say, you know, okay, I'll have to come up with the money or talk to my doctor about maybe reducing those fees, which is another issue we should deal with. Uh, but if they didn't do that, then I think it's entirely on the insurer. It's a very solid basis for a claim as far as I'm concerned. Right. Um, dealing with the doctor, this is a, more getting into the territory we were talking about in the first segment where you have a doctor or treatment provider that is either not providing records or in this case uh, requesting what is perhaps an exorbitant amount i don't know you know how how big this file was but 250 dollars is pretty steep for clinical notes and records unless we're talking about you know 15 years of weekly appointments Hmm. then maybe but you know if you're talking about 30 or 40 pages i don't really see that as being reasonable there are rates that are set by the college of physicians and surgeons and i think each corresponding college probably has something similar but in any case the the charges have to be reasonable this information actually belongs to the patient as a patient that information is yours the doctor is entitled to charge a reasonable amount for the administrative costs of producing those, but it's not a profit center for them. It's huh. not something that they should be looking to make money on or you know, holding the, their patients hostage before they produce. They should be able to recoup their reasonable costs, and that's it. That information is yours, and you're entitled to it. But again, it's a tricky situation when you're dealing with uh, with a physician or with any treatment provider who is actively providing with a potential client with treatment, I don't want to destroy that relationship or in any way hamper that relationship because that is the most important thing is that this person continues to get treatment. And so you have to deal with those situations delicately. There are ways to do that, but in this particular case, I don't think it much matters. I think the insurer is in the wrong here. I think having not at least given this lady the opportunity to decide whether she wanted to pay it or not. They've taken responsibility for obtaining the records and having not done so, it's on them. Any comment about that tomorrow? We can move on to some emails. What do you think? Well, you know, I, I of course I agree with James, and I think mm-hmm. that what what bugged me a little bit was I, I started thinking, you know, if I was in in this gentleman's shoes, you know, would I have just coughed up the money so that I could have kept getting my disability benefit? But it, but it's not it's not like that. It's not so linear that way because insurers are actively looking for opportunities to decline claims, and so you know I agree with James that the, I don't think the insurance company is in the right in this situation. I mean, of, of course, we want to understand a little more about the communications between them and, frankly, what the policy says. But, you know, I, I think what bugged me a little bit was, you know, 
the outcome for this gentleman was that the benefits were cut off. And, I, you know, I think that that really was the fundamental problem when the disability decision was rendered by the insurer. It means they didn't have complete information and on partial information asserted the position or the response to the claimant that his disability was not properly supported. Uh, if the insurer knows that there's more information to be had, they do have an onus and a duty also to ensure that their decisions are complete and have you know a fulsome you know review of that information before they say no uh, and i think that's what bothered me a little bit about this gentleman's situation but anyway don't well, mean you to don't, belabor it Go well ahead, actually it, it occurs to me though that they may have perhaps done him something of a favor I, I think i said this lady before so i apologize i've created some confusion with our listeners but i think they may have done this gentleman um a inadvertently done him a favor because oftentimes in this sort of situation where the, they don't have the clinical notes and records for whatever reason, we don't see a hard decline. We see a soft decline, which is, they say, we don't have sufficient information at this point. We are still waiting to hear from whatever, and so we're pending our decision. And they don't tell you what they're going to do. Functionally, it seems like it's more or less the same thing. You're not getting paid either way. And if they change your mind down the road, whether it's on appeal or technically the initial decision, so what? But the difference is, having given a hard decline, they've opened the door to starting a claim now. And in doing so, at least that gives this gentleman another option, which he might not have if they're just saying, hold on, wait until we get the records, and then we'll decide. So a silver lining at the very least. Which is why you reach out, and you always have to, guys. As we get to a break, I'll give you an opportunity to uh, to grab a phone if you want for the remainder of the show, and that is 416-872-1010 here on the show, 71010 if you prefer the quiet route of texting. And anytime, reaching out to James and Tamar, always available. Great teams behind them. That is 1-855-821-5900. And that email is help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. One thirty-five. Welcome back. Good to have you here. Four one six eight seven two ten ten for the phone call into the station for James or Tamar. Text seven ten ten as well. You can email, which we're going to get to right now. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And there's another place you can go. A website called mydisabilityquestions.com. You do the same thing anonymously. Ask your questions there. Search to see if your question's already there. Not your exact question, but one similar. Right? If it is, you're uh, saving yourself some time. If not, leave it there, and one of the crew will get to it. My disability questions. Com. Moving on, guys, to David uh, says, hey, guys, my insurance company wants me to fill out an education training and experience form four months into my LTD claim. I'm still seeing my neuro uh, neurologist regarding my diagnosis. I drive a commercial vehicle and have lost my license for five years. This is my posted position with my employer. Should I be filling out this form so early into my LTD claim? So I, I understand what's going on here to be, um, or, or what your concern is at least. For the benefit of our listeners, uh, the education, training, and experience form is more or less exactly what it sounds. It's just a way for the insurer to get an understanding of essentially what are your qualifications to do your job or for that matter, other positions. And typically it is used 
when the insurer is sniffing around and looking to see whether there's something else that you might do, often around the two-year mark, that change of definition, because that's when the insurer has the ability to um, look for other jobs that you might be able to do because the test changes. It's no longer about whether you can do your own occupation, but whether you can do any occupation that you're uh, qualified for by training, education, mm-hmm. or experience. And so you don't typically see that being asked for so early in the process, which is, I'm sure, why to be asking, particularly given the fact that he has lost his license for five years, meaning that he can't do his own occupation somewhere else. Um, so it's not a matter of changing jobs and having right. a slightly different uh, you know, set of duties and responsibilities. He's not going to be able to do it for five years. So I get where he's coming from. First and foremost, I'll say, um, you know, it, while it might be unusual and perhaps might be pointless, you should fill it out. And for the simple reason that they're entitled to ask you for that, the issue is what they use it for. If they ask you for it and you refuse to provide it to them, you're giving them an opening to cut off your benefits. It may not be a justifiable reason for doing it ultimately. In other words, if they were to cut off your benefits because you refused to provide it to them and you brought a lawsuit and you were ultimately at some point in front of a judge, which would be very unlikely, but if it ever got that far, I think a judge would probably say that that wasn't a sufficient basis in those circumstances to cut off your claim. But you don't want to get there. You don't want them to cut off your benefits and have to bring a lawsuit and then have to wait a couple of years before you get in front of the judge to find that out. You want them to keep paying your benefits. And so why not just fill out the form? The question is what they do with it afterwards. And frankly, until the two-year mark, if you are incapable of returning to your own occupation, there really isn't anything that they can do with it. My suspicion is that they are sniffing around looking to see if there are other things that you could do with your employer, accommodations that could be made doing something that is not in fact your occupation, but something else that you could do. Now, it would be voluntary if you decided to do it, frankly, because you're only required to return to your own occupation under the terms of the policy. Whether that's a different issue in terms of your employment contract is a little bit beyond my area of expertise and the focus of this show. But insofar as the insurer is concerned, that's really something where they're hoping that your employer might find something else that you can do and that you decide to go ahead and do that. And in doing so, would relieve the insurer of the obligation to keep any benefits. But if insofar as the insurance is concerned, if uh, you, you know, if even if there was another position available through your employer and you decided not to do it, the insurer would be required to keep paying your benefits. Tamar? Yeah, I agree with you, of course, wholeheartedly, James. I'm a strong uh, advocate for open, honest cooperation with the insurance company. Don't give them an excuse to sort of say, look, you're not being compliant or you're not being cooperative with our adjudication efforts. The thing is, I've seen in some disability policies where the definition of disability will say, you know, own occupation, any occupation. And then it will have a line actually just underneath that that says our assessment of total disability is not impacted if you require a license to do the job for which we're assessing your disability for. Some policies actually have that right in the body of the definition of disability. And so a couple of things came to mind in David's situation. 
One, does his policy actually have this language in it, which may then force the insurance company's hand to assess other occupations or do a a different assessment or analysis right from the start of his claim because perhaps the fact that he's lost his license is technically quote unquote not relevant in the policy as a basis for total disability just the license the loss of the license in and of itself the other thought i had was and i've seen this on occasion whether or not his disability policy actually is an any occupation policy right from the start because sometimes there are policies like that they're cheap ones i gotta say but some employers only have any occupation right from the start which means it is a tough test to meet right from the beginning of a disability claim to say there's nothing else that you can do and it makes sense that the insurance company in a situation like this is probing David on what his background is, because that's in fact the analysis the insurance company needs to do right at the outset of the claim. You know, he's four months in, so maybe not so much. I think James's uh, suspicions around what's happening makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, but those are the couple of things that that came to mind when I was reading David's email, is that, you know, could there be a nuanced definition of disability on this one? Which by the way, if there is, you want to find that out you know you are entitled to a copy of the disability policy you can get it from the insurance company if you put it in writing you should be able to get it from your employer right away without really much hassle either way get it you know if you're not sure send it to us we'll take a read um we'll let you know what's going on uh, either way though i think there's no real downside in my mind for david to cl- to complete the uh education training experience uh form yeah, and I think it's really instructive in any situation. Here we're just talking about this specific form. But generally speaking, even though we tend to push back on insurers doing things unnecessarily or asking for more than they're entitled to, there is a balance that you have to strike. And you have to always consider whether it's worthwhile complying with the request or refusing to do so, understanding that if you do say no, the insurer is likely going to use that as a reason to cut off your benefit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is some amount of compromise that I think is worthwhile considering. That only goes so far, right? I mean, if there is at least the, uh, you know, a superficial basis for them to be asking for something, as there is in this case, there is at least a superficial basis for them to be asking for. They're technically entitled to this information, even if it may not have any practical application at this moment in time. They're entitled to get that type of background information. So there's really no positive reason to refuse it. And that's often true when we're looking at these types of requests from insurers. Um, When you have an insurer that wants to send you for a medical assessment, for example, um, as long as it's an appropriate medical assessment, I would always advise someone to agree. But if they're asking you to see someone who has no expertise related to your disability, that's probably going too far. Or if they're asking you to see, to see someone you know, twice within a couple of months or see two different experts in the same field within a couple of months, then I'm saying, no, you're not entitled to that. And that's taking it too far. It's an invasion of your privacy. It's also it sort of smacks of the insurer expert shopping and trying to find someone that's going to give them the opinion that you, that they want to have. And so it's a balance. You always have to take a look at the benefit of continuing to receive those monthly benefits versus the invasion on your privacy and you know the invasion on your mental health and what it does to your stress and anxiety. 
David, appreciate that. You want to follow up with a phone call if you have not already, you can do so. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred hundred rather. Amber, we'll get to your email next. You can send them anytime. Help at disabilityrights.ca or use the website mydisabilityquestions.com. We continue. More disability law show is on the way. This is the Bell Talk Radio Network. minutes to go don't you know you want to reach out afterwards to james and tomorrow that is really easy you don't have to stick to this hour you can do it anytime 1-855-821-5900 matters to discuss in private that's the number to uh, to use help at disabilityrights.ca that's the email address want to get on to uh, amber's email guys now that we got uh, got some time says hey james hey tomorrow i was involved in a bad car accident in uh, 2018 I was diagnosed with a concussion and had major pain issues and depression after that for several years. Part of my claim was for long-term disability benefits, which was denied after a year of payments. I hired a lawyer to help me fight this and settled my LTD claim, even though I was not well enough to work. With more treatment since then, I managed to get back to work last year, but I only lasted for six months. I passed out at work and my doctor put me off work again. I got STD benefits, but my LTD benefits were declined. By the time I got back to work, my company had switched insurance companies. The letter I got from this insurance company said my LTD claim was not covered because my disability was a pre-existing and directly or indirectly, quote-unquote, related to my prior health issues. I don't think my current condition was related to my pain treatment, so I thought I would reach out to you to find out if this makes any sense. What do you think, Tamar? Yeah, I... Tough. Really, really tough. So let's unpack a little bit about this coverage situation. So what Amber has described to us is that she had a prior disability claim with the disability insurer her employer had before uh, they switched and before she returned back to work. And it sounds as though she settled that out. Uh, I hope she got a good settlement. But anyway, what ends up happening is she returns back to work and is not able to string together more than six months of work and tries to make a further disability claim and is denied on a couple of technical issues. These technical issues, one in particular, the pre-existing condition clause, is one that can be really, really tough to challenge with a disability insurer. And here's why. The insurer will have this pre-ex clause, we call it in short, to eliminate or otherwise uh, weed out uh, individuals who frankly are looking to to insurance company shop. And this clause really, that's what it was meant for. It basically says that if you are disabled in that first year of coverage usually, and that disability stems either directly or indirectly from symptoms or conditions that you had before you became insured under that plan, then the insurance company can use this clause to say, you know what, we're not going to cover you. You're probably a high-risk person anyway, and here's our pre-existing condition clause, and we're denying on this basis. And I think that's what's happened in Amber's situation, unfortunately. The thing is, though, when the employer changes carriers, 
it theoretically shouldn't necessarily reset the clock for the disability insurer, the new one that is, to rely on the pre-existing condition clause. Because for the claimant's perspective, there should be some continuity of coverage. The problem with Amber's situation, though, is that she was off and then returned and would be subject to all of the eligibility requirements under this new plan. And I think I'm concerned that perhaps, in fact, the, the insurance company has applied the pre-existing condition clause correctly. Now, I'd want to get into more details around her medical condition and why she says it's not related. One is not, not having to do with the other. I also really want to read and review carefully what the pre-existing condition clause actually says in her policy. Because this is one, John, you know, James and I can tell you where from policy to policy, it can vary. It can be slightly different as to the requirements, what the pre-existing condition period is that's relevant to the analysis. And it could be that there is a basis to challenge. But it's one of these situations that it's an all or nothing. Either the insurance company's correct or Amber is correct. And the courts have been very clear that it's either there is a policy there and it's payable or it's not. So before you embark on the journey of challenging the disability insurer, you want to get a very clear opinion uh, from a lawyer or somebody to say, look, we think that the insurance company has actually done this correctly or incorrectly. Um, you know, James and I will see oftentimes that the one that, that there is issues around is mental health conditions, for example. And claims adjusters, for some reason, seem to assume wrongly, may I add, that depression is the same as anxiety, is the same as, you know, some other mental health condition, because the symptoms can be quite similar. Perhaps the functional impacts can be similar. But in fact, the diagnoses and the condition for why you're pursuing disability benefits are different. So. It can be uh, one that we can challenge more readily if the insurance company is actually denied on the basis of the pre-existing condition clause. So I think from her, from my perspective, I'd want to do a little bit more vetting to try and understand. Look, what what it was it that she, uh, you know settled out on what was the health issues that existed before and really the time frame in which she's returned back to work and what is it that put her off once again? James, what do you think about this one? Well, let's assume for a moment that the insurer is at least correct in the application of the pre-existing exclusion clause. That whatever the timeframes are set out in the policy, the pre-existing clause would apply, notwithstanding whether or not it ought to have carried over. Assuming that is the case, and obviously that's the first part of the analysis, but let's assume that that doesn't help us at all. I think that there is probably a claim here against the employer because she would have maintained her uh, her employment even while she was on leave, even while she was getting disability benefits and while she was waiting. I mean, there isn't anything in here to suggest that her employment at some point terminated and then she went back to the same employer. I suspect she would have told us if that were the case. So presumably she has been technically an employee of the same company throughout from before she went on her first leave right up until today. And if that's the case, I, I think it's incumbent on the employer to make sure that when they are switching insurance providers, that there are accommodations made for those that are already uh, on disability insurance, that they won't be negatively impacted by the change. In other words, if the employer is sitting there saying, well, this is a different policy that will save us some money, um, but and we're going to switch over, that's all well and good as long as it isn't going to remove fundamental benefits to the employee. 
if it's doing that, that's taking something away that they're entitled to. And the ability to have continuous disability benefits that aren't going to be impacted by pre-existing claim that wouldn't have been impacted if they, if they hadn't moved should be part of that. They should be entitled to make sure that the employer is doing that. And they usually do. It's usually not an issue. And if they haven't done it in Amber's case, I would really look into that. Now, uh, you certainly, tomorrow, you certainly have more experience when it comes to employment issues. But I, I think that would definitely be something I would be exploring this particular situation. Because if you are able to bring the claim against the employer, that actually can work out very nicely. Because then you can actually get the court to provide you with future benefits because it's not typically the employer is paying future benefits. It's not based on the contract. Absolutely. And so they, the employer could actually be stepping in the shoes of the disability insurer in a situation like this. So it is a really good point that James raises. And it, it harkens a, a situation that I came across recently where the extended health care coverage actually changed while the individual was off on an approved disability leave. And what ended up happening was they the prior package that they had had allowed them to get access to in uh, in treatment, in-hospital treatment for some conditions that this individual had, and then the carrier changed, and then the coverage was dropped off. And so then the uh, benefits provider, the hospital, I believe in this situation, turned to my client and said, okay, well, you got to pay the bill. And that doesn't cut it if the employer has taken something away that should have continued and uh, and been covered for this person. And that is it for this week. Back at it. In the meantime, reaching out to James tomorrow, one 821 5900 and help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show with the Bell Talk Radio Network.